Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us for a conversation with Peter Warshaw. What I'd like to do very quickly is to lay out four kind of watershed points in the history of the planet. And I'm going to really talk big here, and again, um, and how they have set the consciousness of Earth care um, all around the world, not just here. And so I'm going back to my kind of more international experience. And I'm doing that because I think that, for one thing, history gets lost, and people forget that, that actually there was a history. We just laid out a history. And also because this is, uh, these things are still alive. And if you know they had this uh, 40 or 50 year history behind them, uh, it might be easier to work with. The first one, uh, oddly to many people, is that the origins of Earth care came with Hiroshima. It came with the first nuclear attack on Japan. And the reason it did is because when Hiroshima happened, for the first time, people began to think, has science and technology gone too far? Have, is there some kind of limit to our curiosity and our inventiveness and our imagination? And, with that, and do we have to really take that into consideration? And so the whole small is beautiful movement kind of came out of understanding that we had gone too far in Hiroshima. The second one was that it was the first time that non-combatants had really been killed. And a lot of non-combatants had been killed for the sake of ending a war. And that issue has remained with us. The rules of war keep on changing. And one of the major causes of environmental destruction on the planet is during warfare. It happened in the Gulf War. You see it all over Africa tens of years of real careful planning of the best thoughts about restoration, all of a sudden, they're gone overnight. And, you know, I worked in a national park in southern Ethiopia, set up the whole national park, and then uh, on the Ethiopian-Kenyan border near Sudan, the whole civil war or civil strife broke out. Uh, overnight, 10,000 people moved into the national park. Within two months, every tree had been cut to make, you know, it was just, you know, it ha it's, it, and that, so the connection between the peace movement and environmental care started in part with Hiroshima. The other thing that Hiroshima did was to say that we could poison ourselves, that in killing the enemy, we could poison ourselves, and that was through radioactive fallout. So it was the first understanding that there was one world. You know, when, and so Hiroshima has become this underlying, unspoken about incident in the world that brought many things together. Let, let me say quite quickly, um, the, one of the first citizen science combinations, and that, they're very important and we don't usually think that, but citizens can do things that scientists can't do because scientists sit around in universities and they only study things in July and August, you know. Um, you know, while citizens are living here in Bolinas, uh, we saw that in Bolinas with studying the ways the ocean works 
you know, Josh Churchman knew a hell of a lot more than any hydrologist they ever took in. And um, what happened right after the bomb testing started in the United States and all over the world was a man named Barry Commoner asked all mothers to send in their children's teeth, their baby teeth, when they fell out. And he took their teeth and he looked for strontium-90 in their teeth and showed that the baby's teeth had strontium-90 from radioactive fallout, no matter where you were on the planet. It was this great example of citizen science. You know, it's the same way that now everybody uses the Audubon bird counts to show global warming because you have a hundred year history of where birds were and when they migrated. So one of the results of Hiroshima and the nuclear era was this idea that citizens could participate in gaining information that gained political power. The other one was that Hiroshima started something that is unique on the planet, which is environmentalism or sustainability has spread without militarizing. There is no military form of environmentalism. I mean, there have been kooks, you know, occasional, but there's no, if you think of socialism, capitalism, communism, fascism, any of the other isms, they all spread by militarizing. But the environmental movement spread without any militarism. And it spread without any central focus. There was no, you know, czar of greenness that was telling everybody around the world, you know, green out, you know, or else we're going to put you in jail or something like that. So um, it, starting around in the early, well, and the first time was a whole bunch of Quakers um, in Inuak Island uh, got on a boat to bear witness inside the zone that they were going to test an atom bomb. It was the first attempt of a nonviolent action to bear witness and bring to the world by bearing witness uh, that there was something wrong going on here. Uh, that, of course, was followed by the beginning of Greenpeace and Amchitka. Um, Greenpeace doing an amazing thing by bringing nonviolence uh, into a glamorous, almost Hollywood location to spread around the world by having dramatic photographs, by doing dramatic things that were all nonviolent, but interfering uh, with it. And then extending that, look how it goes in history. You first start by st trying to stop atom bomb testing, and then you move it into trying to, to save whales. So the connection of understanding that a tool of this movement was going to be nonviolence, interference, yes, but nonviolent interference, was re really came out of Hiroshima and out of the atom bomb testing. And so it's, and it still is there underneath it. Uh, I should say as an aside that if you look at the history of saving whales, again, Bellinus is crucial. In the 1970s, uh, Joan McIntyre lived here, started, uh, put out a book called Mind in the Waters, that uh, started the campaign to write Khrushchev from children's uh, schools. Barbara Belding, who lived here at that time, did that, and went around, <laughs> in fact, I remember on Evergreen Road, this old van coming up, and everyone saying, that's it, that's it, we're gonna go around to all the schools. Within five minutes, the artists were out there, they had painted a whale on the side of it. <laughs> did you do that? <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, and suddenly this little old van, VW van, was turned into a whale mobile, and in the back we dumped all kinds of painting equipment and stuff like that, and it set out across California to write letters to Khrushchev to stop whaling. 
So again, what we're seeing is a series of kinds of nonviolent actions that uh, came out of, um, they shut down the whaling thing in Richmond and right at that time. So um, again, what I wanted to then say, the other thing that came out of that was that the environmental movement did not have to be a left-wing movement. That especially happened when the French turned on Greenpeace and blew up the boat and killed someone. And so from the world's point of view, environmentalism was never seen as a leftist movement. It may have been seen that way in this country, but in the world it was never viewed that way. In fact, the left destroyed part of the anti-nuclear movement in France during that period of time because they wanted to be combined as a part of a larger vision of socialism. And there's this dialogue that always goes on, and Michael referred to it, do we do specific things and hope they ripple out, or do we have grand ideas? And I think one of the strengths of the environmental movement is it avoided grand ideas. It was against the Western idea that there's one transcendent theory, one big philosophy that said, we'll do a lot of small things and they'll have this, you know, it's the Grateful Dead song, ripple in clear water, you know, it was, came, came at the same time. The other thing that came out of it though, and this is a very practical things, was the understanding of risk management. Up in, people don't realize that no one ever considered risk. And then with the advent of the atom bomb and with thinking about risk management, suddenly this whole new, now quite corrupt, but still very large uh, business came out. And it especially occurred in Chernobyl, after in 1986 when Chernobyl, because all of a sudden, Bolinas was getting radioactive fallout from Chernobyl. There's a guy named Dave DeSanti, who was uh, a great birder nut in this town. And he was claiming that the birds were having fewer eggs for the three years after Chernobyl because of the radioactive fallout. He still has not been disproved on that, by the way, but everybody avoided it. It was not something. But anyway, risk management as a tool for environmental care, um, and Charles really involved with it, both its abuses and its uses, um, for uh, health care. The other thing that came out of it is that we started with bombs, then we went to nuclear reactors. From nuclear reactors, everybody went and said everything is interconnected. Someone here was talking about interconnection was the religious principle of the environmental movement. And it still remains that. It's its strongest conceptual tool, that interliving interconnection. And what happened is that people said, okay, where does these nuclear reactors, what are they connected to? So people in New Mexico went to the mines of the Navajo and looked at the mines where it came from. And one group there said, okay, we're gonna take care of where it comes from because people are dying here of radioactive waste material. Other people went the other direction and said, okay, what's gonna, what happens after it goes out of the nuclear reactor? What happens to the waste? And you have the whole Yucca Mountain controversy. But all of a sudden the mind, and it's hard for people to believe, but in the 50s people didn't connect those things. And so the production chain from harvesting, to assembly, to manufacture, to use, to waste, that whole thing suddenly formed one picture. And that picture became the green, green ecology, green industry, green building, green everything. And so again, we go back to Hiroshima on that. So that, of course, um, the whole idea of thinking glo globally uh, is part of the global warming 
background, people could now think globally, and they weren't afraid of thinking globally. It wasn't as ridiculous to think globally um, because they had already thought globally about radioactive fallout. So um, that's the first event that I really, and I, I want people to think about it because it's still there. It's there in Iran. It's there, you know, in Yucca Mountain. It remains a kind of a solid underpinning of why people want to care for the Earth because the nuclear thing is heavy duty, you know? And the second person in this case that it formed the environmental movement was Gandhi. And again, from an American point of view, we never think of Gandhi in terms of the environmental movement. But from a world point of view, Gandhi is crucial. And mostly, he planted the idea that we don't even use in the environmental movement in the West of Satyagraha. Satyagraha meant that you persistently endure looking for basic truths. That that is one of the reasons you exist on the earth. And so more than getting into politics like, you know, or political dealing, you always have to look for that basic truth. And you have to keep on reflecting on the purity of your own motives. I mean, he was very explicit about that. So here we have a man who's saying, Look at the, keep on, the most important thing is to look for basic truths, be it interconnectedness or not, uh, or, and always reflecting on the purity of your motives. Are you doing this because you're doing it for the town, or are you doing it because you want to get elected next time? And as everybody who's even in this town gone for, uh, gone for political office knows that the difficulty of politics is that you have to navigate all the time. What do you need to get elected, and what do you really believe in? And so, actually, to the young people, I would say, please think about going into public office. I mean, I really mean that. Not for your life. You don't have to do it. But it's the best school you'll ever go to. It's also, <laughs> as people here can testify, one of the most difficult. <laughs> Michael, in particular, was so, I mean, at that point in your life, you were so kind and sensitive to people that when people came to the waterboard with their completely obstreperous ideas, he, it was really hard. I mean, I know Michael really ha deserves a lot for going through that stuff. Uh, I learned how to be a little more hardened because I was off the streets of Brooklyn and I was sitting next to Paul Kafitz a lot, so. <laughs> um, but I was, Paul was great. He made me look like the good guy because he was, <laughs> so, so we were the good cop, bad cop, and you know, I wasn't really that good a cop, but um, next to Paul, I looked that way. Um, so Gandhi also said that there's a real need to practice an inner discipline to match your daily life work. And that, was, that led to a whole thing I'll talk about a little later, but the inner discipline to match your daily life work meant that you couldn't be a happy hypocrite. You can't go out and, and buy everything you want on the consumer market without thinking about it, which is part of your inner life, and at the same time being an environmentalist. I mean, you can't do that. I mean, one of the real problems in the Bay Area is that, that the happy hypocrites are rampant, especially around Silicon Valley. You know, they just will not look at the origins, that production line that Hiroshima did. And Gandhi really, and people take this very seriously, for instance, in India or in parts of Asia. And um, 
The other thing that Gandhi's real teaching was, and Chico Mendes in Brazil was a person who really understood it and read Gandhi. I mean, it's not like these people didn't read each other, you know. Um, and that was that you had to tune your mental state to the appropriate time and place that you were in. So right now, for instance, in America, we're in a very hard time. Uh, you know, that, but that you ha and so you have to change your mental state for the time that you're in. And you can't hold on to idealism separate from where you live with people. So those were the four really basic teachings of Satyagraha that Gandhi gave directly or indirectly. And Gandhi got it, by the way, by reading Thoreau. I mean, that was one of his favorite books. So this was already a globalized connection spreading around the planet about how to go about uh, your life, your interdisciplined life. Um, and, you know, Gandhi's favorite phrase was, you know, how do you uh, limit the indefinite multiplication of wants? Of wants. Yeah. So how do you limit your, you know, people want everything, you know? And so he was the beginnings of that part of voluntary simplicity movement that came and went in America. Um, <laughs> um, he was trying to ask people, what is wealth? What do you consider personal wealth? How much do you actually need? And inside of that, um, what are the ways to be happy with not extracting so much from the planet? And does, what's the relationship of happiness to extraction? And so if we look at things like sustainability, he just called it the economy of permanence. It's like where permaculture came from, actually. Came, call it the economy of permanence. And that's what we mean usually by sustainability. So Gandhi is this crucial person, you know, um, obviously related to nonviolence, related to neo-communism, neo-capitalism. Again, uh, look at Gandhi as the source. He only ate fruit and vegetables. To many people, Gandhi is the source of the vegetarian movement. You know, I mean, that's in the 1930s, this man decides that the killing of animals is not what he wants to be responsible for and what that means. And so we again see him as the beginning, especially because he was part of a very pro-farmer idea. He was almost the first food to table person on the planet. I mean, he said, like, it's more important to take care of the rural soil and people than it was to go into the cities and do stuff because that's where the food came from. So we see also in Gandhi something that only exists in this country is the environmental justice movement, but around the world is the peasant rebellion movement. And Gandhi's, wherever you see peasant rebellions, like with Chico Mendes, if people don't know who he was, he was a rubber tapper that tried to create reserves in, in Brazil where indigenous people could live with the rubber tappers and they'd keep the ranchers out and that they could tap, keep the trees and the forest uh, tapping the rubber for local economy. And he was killed. One should notice that in all religious movements, and I consider this kind of a religious movement, there are martyrs and people are, going, people are killed. And so, and people in different parts of the world have a different idea who their martyrs are. Uh, there was a big movement in Thailand where these Buddhist priests uh, put yellow ribbons around trees and turned them into Buddhists. 
by doing it, they blessed them and they converted them to Buddhism and said to the loggers, you can't now kill these trees, you'll be killing a fellow Buddhist. And so all these trees were marked and the solution to that, of course, was kill the priest. <laughs> and, but it was an amazingly, and still is a strong force in Thailand, that the religion, the sense of religion and the sense of saving what you think is important was by uh, turning a living creature into a Buddhist. Uh, the same thing happened in the Chipko movement, uh, early 1970s, series of women, a sports company was coming in to take down their forest. They had been given a permission by the state. They all tied themselves to the tree and said, if you're going to take down these trees, you're going to take down us. And they attached themselves to the trees. So what I'm, what I'm trying to give here is that this has been moving around the world. This isn't just an American kind of idea or something like that. And as it moved around the world, it worked in with peasant rebellion and has a lot to do with peasant rebellion. And they, so they might not even call it environmentalism. You know, they might call it saving the local acequia or saving the local irrigation system. But it has this undertone or this connection to environmentalism. Um, I mean, unfortunately, Gandhi was probably a little too idealistic about saving um, the rural economy. I mean, I still think it's a great idea, but it's a, and I'm now working, by the way, since this, I said I was going to be personal here, I'm now working in New Mexico trying to work with the state government so that by 2010, 35% of all the food that's eaten in New Mexico will be grown within New Mexico. And Governor Richardson, is, uh, there's a great group, kind of food to table group. And so the first thing we're doing is we're seeing what food is imported into New Mexico, what food is exported, and what food is grown locally. And it would be the first time a state has ever kind of made that accounting. And then from there, we can start playing with what's easy to do. You know, like what, what things can we, uh, that are exported, can we just keep in the state? That's the easiest one to do. And then the second one is, uh, you know, obviously rice is never going to be grown in New Mexico and people like rice. So there's always going to be imports. And um, so it's a new stage of thinking about local economy, which isn't really local anymore. It's thinking like, what can you do that's local and what do you accept that has to be global? You know, and, you know, like rice or something like that. And so um, that's all comes directly out of Gandhi. I mean, uh, we might also look at Gandhi in a different way. Uh, which is something that is happening in America as a very young country, um, which is that tourism is turning into pilgrimage. If you go into India, people do these pilgrimages. And the nice thing about pilgrimage is you, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter if you wind up there in a jet or you wind up there hitchhiking, everyone is equal in front of the shrine. It's a form of democracy. And India, of course, has had it for two or 3,000 years. But in America, look at if you, you know, when you go around places and you ask people what they want to do, and if they have kids, they say, well, I want to take them to Yellowstone. I want to take them to Yosemite. I want them to see the Grand Canyon. So that now called tourism is slowly morphing into a pilgrimage, that these are the things that one must do to pay homage to the natural heritage of America. And it's a very interesting, you know, it may take another 100 years. I'm not saying this is tomorrow. But there's no one who can stop this. I mean, it's not a political act. It's a slowly 
growing understand that if oh my dad took me to the Grand Canyon and you know that was one of the great moments you know when so I'm going to take my kid to the Grand Canyon so it's creating a tradition that has to do with respect for the natural heritage and so again let's look back Gandhi did that he understood the nature of pilgrimage in a very clear manner and that that was strong so um, okay I'm, I can go on about Gandhi too long so um, but you should just know that that's I don't I think if you read any book about environmentalism they never mention him and that so it's real important to understand from a world perspective Gandhi and Barb Marley are probably the two most important people. You, know, you can hear Barb Marley anywhere you go. You know. Peter, um, let me suggest, let's go another 20 minutes, yeah. and then we'll take a break, okay. and then come back into this. Okay. So, well, let me, in the next 20, 10 minutes, I'll give you the last two people who are part of this uh, longer history. And, you know, if this is not interesting, just tell me I'll do something else. But uh, <laughs> um, the third person involved here is Rachel Carson. And I'll, and let me give you a different perspective. There's, um, in the 1890s, a woman named Rachel Swallow, Elizabeth Rachel Swallow, gave the first lecture in America to use the word ecology. She's completely unknown. She became the first, this is a very bulimic story actually, she became the first professor at MIT in charge of water quality and sewage. She built some of the best sewage treatment systems in the country in the 1920s, stopping waterborne diseases throughout the nation. She invented the word home economics, which in the early 1900s meant you taught women what were adulterants in food and how to clean the kitchen so that the kids wouldn't get sick, which no one had really thought about because germs had just been thought of. It was an idea. She then... so. Ellen, Ellen Rachel Swallow is completely not even talked about in America. I, I mean, I don't know, maybe you knew about her, but people don't, don't even know. She was connected to Jane Hull, who was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize and started a, a little house in, uh, called the Hull House now in, in Chicago to help immigrants and poor people. Jane, Jane Adams, right. Thank you. And in one of those rooms lived a woman named Alice Hamilton. Alice Hamilton worked there for three years and then went on to become the first woman professor at Harvard, became the world expert on heavy metals, wrote the book that was used from 1930 until 1960s on heavy metal pollution in the United States, and 54, 55 years ago now, suggested to Congress that they take tetraethyl lead out of gasoline. It took 54 years and she gave all the same reasons that were given 50 years later for the w kids getting brain damage. You know, she knew it all. These two women, one working in waterborne disease, one, the next one working with heavy metals, were really a small step to Rachel Carson, who then in the 1950s began to notice synthetic organic pollutants, molecules that we made instead of natural molecules. So you have the, this incredible lineage of women who understood the urgency of childcare, the urgency of health, and its connection to the environmental food web, if you want to call it.
and it's to me it's amazing that this story is not written i mean you know it's like one of the great and it continued by the way uh it continued with lois gibbs down who headed the environmental justice movement on love canal con continued with theodore Colburn, who then added, added endocrine disruptors to it. I mean, but it's all these women. So here was 1962. Um, no one, DDT was connected to patriotism because it had helped all the soldiers uh, fight malaria and everything like that. Along comes uh, Rachel Carson. I mean, to give you a feeling for that time, I mean, that was the time I was brought up. There was uh, a movie called The Incredible Shrinking Man. And it starts with a, uh, your typical husband walking down the streets and he sees an atom bomb testing way out in the future. And as he's doing it, a guy comes down the street spraying insecticides on all the trees and he gets hit by a dose of radioactivity and, and insecticides at the same time. He goes home and he starts to shrink. <laughs> and he soon he's so small that his wife keeps him in the dollhouse and there's great early sci-fi camp humor where he finds his wife's needle for sewing, which is now bigger than he is, and he has to fight off a spider in this house, you know. And eventually he gets so small, a leak in the house washes him under the door, down into the cellar, and his wife can't find him because uh, he's now this small. And then he gets so small he becomes an atom and fades back into the universe. But, I mean, it's one of those great camp... But that's what we were watching in 1957 because there was no politics. There was only this kind of funny camp humor that was great to see. There was The Blob, I don't know, or, or, there were great movies like that. This is what you did in Brooklyn on Saturday. Um, so um, she suddenly says, okay, we have a new kind of fallout here. Instead of radioactive fallout, people now understand that invisible things can harm you. Radioactive fallout was invisible, it can harm you. Now there's this thing called synthetic organic pollutants that can harm you. And so she wrote, uh, Silent Spring. It was, um, she was called, you know, a hysteric uh, woman way over her head in science. She was actually an incredible scientist. The reason she didn't get her PhD was the depression. She was a single mom taking care of four dependents during the depression. Uh, her sister dies, she takes over their kids. Her mother gets invalid, she takes over her mother. I mean, this is a woman who has a really, she's kind of a, you know, a saint. St. Rachel, you know, and, um, but what she really does is she takes that lineage of Ellen Swallow, Alice Hamilton, and herself, and because she loved the ocean so much, that's why her book was popular. She'd written two books, The Edge of the Sea and The Sea Around Us, which had won an Oscar as a movie, and so she took what was parallel to it, which was the white male conservation history. John Muir, Adel Leopold, all those guys, you know, John Marshall. And they all love big mountains, charismatic grizzlies, bighorn sheep, you know, they were guys, right? They like to climb rocks, like go hunting. Teddy Roosevelt was one of them. But here was this little, she was five foot four, little petite woman. She loved tongue worms, starfish, things in the tidal pools. But she had that same love of nature and so she takes her love of nature, joins it with this whole idea that now robins are our can new canaries, silent spring, the birds one sing, and brought together what is now the envi major environmental movement. She brought together human health with the conservation movement, a respect for nature. 
and you know, so she's major. I mean, that's what is interesting, you know, about. I mean, Michael and Charles can, of course, talk about this much better. Is that she actually hasn't been that successful, in the sense that um, we, you know, when she was writing, there were a thousand synthetic chemicals. Now there are th probably a thousand produced every year, and eighty thousand, two thousand. Okay, you, I mean, twenty thousand. Yeah, and eighty thousand chemicals out there. So, um, and Bush, of course, has done everything possible. I won't bore you with another anti-Bush talk. <laughs> and <laughs> to, and uh, but on the other hand, you know, her bringing together, I remember David Brower, who was the head of the Sierra Club at that time, was told he should get involved with toxics. And he's, this is like 1969. And he said, oh, no, that's not really something we're involved in. We're involved in the conservation movement. Within two years, you know, he realized that national parks were, were infiltratable by chemicals that DDT could get his osprey inside a national park, and the whole world changed. I mean, so uh, I'll st I'm not, I'm not, not going to go too much on her, but that you should know that she's a crucial moment. And she starts the idea where religion turns into prophecy. After her comes Paul Ehrlich writing The Population Bomb. Um, you know, there's a whole series, The Limits to Growth by the... And, yeah, and so what you have there is a real movement from Ellen Swallow, who's telling people to take care of their home, into a new form of where the environmental movement is willing to be prophetic. You know, if you saw the Oscars, there was Gore being totally prophetic. You know, like that's amazing that this country should like now believe the prophets of they Earth Care. Yeah, 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 and the, and one of the big things the Oscar gets up is Leonardo DiCaprio gets up and says, you know, we're we're doing everything we can to be green at this Oscar in terms of recycling of good materials. I mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty. I mean, I know you guys are tend to be pessimists like myself, but that's actually a pretty astounding um, understanding. And and later I'll talk about the magic of music and poetry and, and film as part of this movement. I mean, it's not. You know, Harriet already mentioned it in Bellinas. I mean, it was there was no difference between artists and and activists. You know, it was a very and adding that is a really important. Well, the last person before we go have lunch is Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger started Planned Parenthood, and Margaret Sanger uh, was a wild woman. <laughs> she was a totally wild one. You have to understand that she was born in 1879. Um, in 1873, there was a thing called the Comstock Act in the United States, which pro prohibited any kind of contraception. And she was being brought up in a world where the American law said contraception was an illegal act. So uh, she, she was pretty wild. She had, you know, kind of the patent place of Bellinas. Uh, <laughs> but she was the first person to understand that women had the right to choose, that, there, that female health was connected to reproductive rights. And that, of course, in terms of the slowing down of the population explosion was crucial. And so she is at the origin of the 1964, two years after Silent Spring, UN Cairo Conference on Population Management. 
and she's also, you know, a person that um, brought up a whole series of religious issues that we can talk about later that have to do with uh, things like abortion. I mean, when does the fetus, when does the embryo become a human being? When does it gain a soul? When does it feel pain? When does it gain consciousness? Uh, a, a, a truly, you know, although we're all for women's rights, a truly unresolved um, philosophical, biological issue. That means that the Dalai Lama is against abortion, you know, even though he's probably the most well-known religious leader, um, because of his understanding of karma and reincarnation, you know. And so very closely, Margaret Sanger was working with a whole series not that became part of the environmental movement without it even understanding. The environmental movement now had to consider what life was about. Uh, the same thing with euthanasia. I mean, when should a person be able to take their own life? Uh, how much should we put them on mechanical life support systems? Uh, that has to do with the allocation of resources, especially as the world ages. Um, so it goes into biotech and embryos, you know, like, you know, genetic manipulation, uh, of, you know, and disease. Um, the big one for me when I worked in Africa, and it was really one of the saddest, most tragic, was the argument over uh, clitorectomies. And here were grandmothers telling their granddaughters that they had to have clitorectomies in order to be, truly be a woman. And, you know, and not only was the health thing horrible with all kinds of, you know, uh, but women, you know, I, I, women were then suffering literally for the rest of their lives with pain, stuff like that. And yet I had been brought up as a cultural relativist by anthropologist that you should accept every culture for what it wants and how it is. And here, you know, I bumped into a woman anthropologist in Ethiopia who said, you know, I'm giving up anthropology. I, I just don't, I, I don't, you know, I don't do this cultural relativism. This is too hard. And she was at Berkeley, you know, so she was going from the heavy duty feminist end on one end to Ethiopia in literally in 10 hours of flight. And so right inside there was this whole understanding that you could not separate out uh, your caring for the human body from the caring for the earth in certain ways and the whole framework in that part of Africa of male control and what, you know, and female control. I mean, it was grandmothers pushing it. So that in, in short, those are the uh, four major icons of the environmental movement. Hiroshima, uh, Gandhi, Rachel Carson, and Margaret Sanger. And they set up the trajectories of uh, kind of what will become the spiritual uh, dilemmas of our generation and the next generation. And so we could stop Thank there. Thank you, Peter. Okay. That's beautiful. Thank you very much. Can you sort of briefly talk about your reflections on the commons as an organizing concept for our work? Well, the commons is a very, everybody wrongly thinks of the tragedy of the commons. And the best, I just reverse it and I think about the flourishing of the commons. And so whenever you hear anyone say tragedy of the commons, you mean, oh no, I know lots of commons that flourished. And um, the commons just, 
has two parts. It has, uh, well, let me, this is the part I'm improvising. So um, Michael asked me to kind of talk about spiritual basis here. And the word worship comes from the word worth shape. To give worth and shape to something is to worship it. And so underneath the commons is this understanding that you give worth and shape to something that more that a group of people or a group of people and other creatures hold in common. And so at that basis to do that, the practical thing I always do, I mean, this is not taught in schools, is you start environmental impact thought by earth, air, water, and energy or fire. And so you think, what is all the earth I mean, especially in Bolinas, is it a clay soil? Is it a clay loam? Is it going to work with a septic tank? You know, I'm sure you did it with the Mesa Park, you know. And then you start with the water, you know, what is the drainage going to be? How much water do we get here? How are we going to irrigate? You know, you go through, is there, in my, not in that case, but uh, is there going to be air pollution? How are we going to affect the air? Uh, how much energy is this going to take? You know, what is the fire potential? Everything like that. So the religious formula for it is to give worth shape to something you go through earth, air, fire, and water. But after that, there's this thing that the Greeks called ether, or something that you couldn't put your finger on. And that was giving weight to that sense of the commons, that there was something that everybody knew or doesn't know. I mean, people are going to walk onto your skate park or somewhere, or uh, people walk through the sewage ponds all the time. They have no idea what that took. And that took a guy who was in the World Bank, lived downtown. Who, what was it, Mr. Oh, God. Who, he wanted a golf course. And he, Sharon, Sharon. Yeah, Sharon, God. That's, uh, and he gave the town a great deal. It created a commons. I mean, a really big commons that affects it. So let me say this is how you, when I think about it. You go through four levels. You go through the local, which could be your office. It could be your home. It could be the town. But it's a very ge geographic local commons. Then you go through the part that's the 21st century, which is the networked commons. And the networked commons is really new. And let me give you a good example of it. Uh, Minamata disease is a disease caused by mercury poisoning. It was also called the crazy cat disease. It came from a little town in Japan called Minamata. And cats went crazy because they ate fish, and the fish were full of mercury, and they started to run in circles. Okay, Minamata disease was known in Japan, but it was also affecting the Ojibwe Indians on the Great Lakes, who also were subject to um, mercury poisoning. All of a sudden, those two, one town began to affect the other. That's a networked commons. The Ojibwe, rather, who couldn't figure out what was going on, shortened the time to their healing process by 10 or 15 years by chance having some connection to the small town in Japan. That's happening all over the world right now in Taiwan plastics in Texas and in Taiwan. You know, all that networking is going on. You know, uh, bird migrations between Canada, United States, and Mexico. Twelve little groups suddenly decide they're going to network. So there's a network to commons, and that one really isn't given enough em emphasis. Then there's the global commons. The global commons is global warming, is the most clear. But on the other way, where the ether is, is that there's this weird spreading over the globe of a new sense of what ethics are about. 
almost a sense of manners, you know, like that we're changing our etiquette. So one of the pieces of the etiquette is that you probably treat cows better, even if you're not if you're a meat eater. I mean, that's really spreading throughout the whole world. Another aspect might be um, in that you try to create a heritage that keeps nature together. You know, there's no wilderness left, frankly. It's all gardening. You know, like everything's a garden. I mean, even the deepest part of the sea is a garden now. The deepest part of the Amazon is a garden because humans are so involved with how it's going to be. So that's another ethic going around, the gardenification of the planet and deciding what you want in the garden. You know, do you want broom in the garden or don't you? You know, you know are you going to allow grizzly bears on your ranch or not? Are you going to allow jaguars to eat a few cattle or not? So that's the other commons. So that there's a moral commons, there's the actual earth commons, there's the network commons and the local commons. Peter said, I didn't know this, worship, giving worth to shape. What is it that is worth shaping? Uh, uh, a commons in our community, uh, the skateboard park, the downtown park, the art shop. You know, I'm just suggesting that what we're doing here is kind of weaving a fabric of that which our community gives worth to shaping, uh, which is pretty central to what we're about. Peter, back to you. I, I just wanted to say kind of practical things. Um, from my experience on um, a lot on the waterboard, that there, when you're trying to uh, create a commons and you, you have to ask a series of questions, human beings have to have working rules for anything they do in common. And that's just who they are as a species. You know, baboons have it, gorillas have it. Humans have it, you know. And so when you're thinking about like people are going to be coming to the commons or the park or something like that, just try to be explicit about what the working rules are. Now, the hard part, and this is, was especially true on the waterboard, was what are the rules to change the rules? Because times change. I mean, global warming may come if you had a you know, a kind of Nazi native attitude, like we can't have any plants that's not native, and then it gets really hot, and you have to start planting cactus, you know, in Bolinas, you know, you want a rule to change the rules so that that doesn't cause chaos. And so those are the two big parts of any commons, is what are the working rules? And they have to be working rules. They're not like, you know, yeah, government, where they're wor what the working rule and what the, but, the other questions that seem to come up in commons is what are the rules about who participates? And that's a really important thing to think about. Like, how do you decide on the participation? I mean, who can be a representative of the people? And when do the people get to represent themselves? You know, and so those are just, um, and who gets to decide who participates? So those are just the kinds of questions that have come up when I've worked on Native American tribes, when I've worked corporations for that matter. The third one is what rules cannot be compromised? You, I mean, in certain situations, you have to have rules that can't be compromised. For instance, you can't have a rule. You have to have a rule that you can't pull up a plant in a native garden without going through this particular process. It just can't be compromised or it's no longer a native garden, you know, or, you know, and, um, and what rules can be flexible? Because you always have to allow people the flexibility, 
you know, so on the water board, it, you, you do have to pay for your minimum amount of water, but then the water board gets to decide how much extra you have to pay if you go over the minimum. You know, so that's a flexible rule in a company. And then the last kind of thing is how is who and how is it going to be monitored? Because you always get in trouble. I mean, this is true in the health scene especially, of how things are monitored and who has the credibility to do monitoring. So those are kind of the general, I mean, I could give you long stories about working in fishing villages in Senegal, but basically those are the rules that kind of, that you have to ask in questions and forming a commons. And once you've asked those questions, then you can have a flourishing commons rather than a tragedy of the commons. If you, uh, another question, not so much here, but in commons around the world, almost all commons are destroyed by invasions. Now that invasion could be a in, in non-native plant. It could be a non-native insect. I'm not talking just about, I mean, in Africa, it's usually some other military group coming in and wiping out what you've set up for 100 years. But um, you always have to think of that. The, what, is ex, what is external is not always external. So global warming is an invader. It's going to invade everybody's garden. So that's another kind of question there. So that, that was just very practical kind of stuff. And then going back to the art part, <laughs> since we're jumping around here, um, one interesting way of thinking about, and I'm talking here about earth care. Remember, I'm not talking about personal expression in art, um, is that when you're doing, like Arthur Okamura somewhere around here, but uh, Arthur did all this art for, uh, yeah, there you go. You know, all this political art that was great. I mean, it was just these buttons that women were wearing, you know, for what was the name of the group? Mom? Mod. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So when you think about that, there are, again, in the kind of political range of Vajrayana, that you want people to be able to focus very simply. It cannot be a complex. It's not like my sitting up here and going through, you know, the number of nutrient balance in the soil. It has to be really focused. And it has to create within the image a bonding effect, that you're bonding people together. And so, you know, and then it has to have a, a funny or releasing effect like author's lips. I don't know if you remember those lips. <laughs> but the, I mean, something that releases you from the immediate situation so you can come back and focus and bond and in, in a certain way. And that is kind of the basis, you know, for empower, spiritual empowerment. So that's just things to think about. I'm yeah. Michael asked me in the second section to give you kind of tools. So the tools here are thinking about focusing, bonding, releasing, and humor as part of releasing and coming back to, to empowerment. So Peter, last words. What are your... My last words, oh yeah. <laughs> well, we're My last words. <laughs> but I just want to give you a shot at anything you haven't said that you, you want to say before we close this yeah. part and go to chat for a while. I think we need gestures in all churches. I think we need kachinas in the plaza. I think we need coyotes screwing up and we should be happy that they screw up. I mean, I think that's really um, one of the ways that um, that you get through. I, I guess I want to answer a little, two, two different things. First, um, I don't like the idea of hope. Um, I think hope sets people up for failure. And I don't think that people should have hope. I think they should know what they love and do what they love and not worry about hope. I mean, you know, 
if you're doing what you love, it's great. You know, you're doing what you love. If you set up yourself for hope, you're going to be disappointed because the world isn't always pleasant. And so be careful about hope. I know, I know Americans love, I mean, you go to France and they say, oh, those Americans, you know, all they want to do is be hopeful. You know, all they want to do is be optimistic. They're so childish. They're like 12 year olds, you know, and the French get on that snotty nose and they put themselves up there and they say, you know, we're sophisticated because we don't have hope, you know. You know, we're existential, you know. And, 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 um, and to extent, I lived in Paris too long. Um, they, 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 and to extent, they're right. Because what they're saying is what you want to do, you do it because you're, it, it really is what you're devoted to. It's what gives you a good feeling to do. And hope is secondary to that. I mean, we all want to win. We all want to get the legislation through that we can get through. We all want to build the road or not build the road that we want to build. But be careful about hope. That's, so that's one thing. The other thing I want to say is that um, nature is humorous and mysterious. And like yourself, I mean, I've been trying to learn from nature since I've been 12 years old. I still know that I, it's way beyond me, <laughs> you know, what's actually going on there. And so the old teachers, the teachers like my teacher, Oren Lyons, who's a Mohawk, always said, you know, when you walk on the ground, you're walking on the face of your children. You know, it's an unseen power there. Because you, you're going to return to the earth, your children are going to come out of the earth. That's the blood, that's the flesh. So when you walk on the earth, just remember you're walking on the face of your children. And that, to me, was like how complicated it is. Because who wants to walk on the face of their children? And you, of course you want to do that gently, you want to do that carefully. And so that's an, so I just want to kind of say, you know, I wish there was an ecological system. But it's not a system. We can't figure it out. It's, there are so many unseen things going on. You know, you can, the best laid plans of mice and men, you know, I mean, so uh, relax about it, you know. <laughs> you know, it's one of the great things, you know. I, I used to say, people used to always tell me about the end of the earth, the end of the earth. And all I could think of is the guy in crack four miles underneath the sea that's not even dependent on sunlight. And there Gaia was putting up all his sulfur fumes and there was a whole community of sponges. So if everything disappeared on the surface of the earth, hey man, it's right there, ready to go again. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, so that's, so, I mean, that, that's the other thing. The other thing I would say is um, find a, a spring, a source of water, a sacred place that's really important to you. Uh, on, in the United States. It doesn't have to be here, uh, although if it's here, there's surely places here, because that's a really good place for that releasing, focusing, bonding. And if you have your own, you know, like it could be anywhere. For me, when I lived in California, it was Rafferty Gulch in Yosemite. I used to think about you a lot when I was up there. <laughs> I had no idea why they call it Rafferty Gulch. Um, and, um, you know, I'd go up there and I'd go by myself for four or five days, you know, but you, don't, you do it any way you want to do it, you know. And, 
And inside that unseen power is another power that is never, that's taboo to be spoken about in Bolinas. But Bolinas was the center of understanding the power of plants, particularly of marijuana and marijuana growth. It, for a long period of time, this was where, how horticulture was learned. Before permaculture, there was marijuana. <laughs> but one of the thing, two things happened there. One is that that, is a ver that was a very good teacher to us about unseen powers, for good and bad. We saw a lot of kids really hurt by it because we weren't good enough elders to guide them with this unseen power of cannabinol. And so we saw kids lost, who lost time, lost their... On the other hand, we, we also, it provided us insight into the unseen powers that only showing us the plants were stronger than people by doing that. And in showing us the plants were stronger than people, it created a kind of hum humility because we understood that we were not the strongest power. And, you know, as I said, it had good and bad consequences. I mean, the celebrations in Bolinas were probably wild and great because of it. And a lot of kids who were, grew up in the school during the 70s really were hurt by it. And so one of the things as elders in this room, those elders I'm talking to, is, to, is that we have to understand what, how to deal with unseen powers. The powers of radioactivity, the power of toxic chemicals, the powers of cannabinol. And that is something that the old wisdom taught. That and we, we just don't have it as part of the culture. So when we're talking about the future, uh, one of the things I would say is, you know, where can we teach in a new school elders or older people to take responsibility for unseen powers? So I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Peter. You've been listening to a conversation from the new school at Commonweal. This program was pre-recorded with a live audience. If you would like to join future conversations, please email us at the new school at commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. And please visit our website, where you'll find full-length recordings of all new school conversations, as well as information on upcoming events. Our website address is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Thank you for joining us.